Uh, we are in uh, the book of Revelation, but we're only looking at the first three chapters of Revelation. Uh, this is a, a time when Jesus is talking directly to the churches. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations where you kinda, you're kind of you with your friend or somewhere and, and their parent like starts yelling at them and they don't know that you're there. Or their boss starts yelling at them and they don't know that you're on the line, it's a speakerphone or whatever. And like you hear somebody like getting, uh, you know, getting yelled at or whatever. I remember I was like eight, nine, or ten years old and I was over at one of my friend's house and we were roughhousing and, and just going out. I mean, we were boys and doing all the boy things. And his mom, who apparently was breastfeeding uh, his younger sibling in her room, ran out of the room without covering herself and started yelling at us. That we need to be quiet and we need to get out of the house and we needed to stop. And my friend just turned bright red and I did not know what to do. And we very, very quietly made our way out of the house and never talked about it again, right? Like we did not know, I didn't know what to do. You know, but I, I hopefully, you know, Mishita maybe not knew I was there or whatever. I don't know how, you know, that was a long time ago. Um, but, you know, for us, Jesus is coming and he's talking to us. And he's having, we're having a hard conversation with Jesus. And you may be here this morning, and maybe you're not a, a part of this church. Maybe you're not even a Christian. But you get to hear this. You get to hear this hard conversation that Jesus comes and he has with us. We are his followers. We are the people who say, hey, we're Christians. We bear the name of Jesus. And so Jesus comes and says, I need to talk to you. I need to direct you. He's speaking to us as believers. You know, uh, we don't uh, often, we, we try not to, and God does not command us to, condemn the behaviors of non-believers, right? The, the judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It begins with us. You know, we, we come, and uh, if, if we're talking to non-believers, and we're saying, oh, you ought not to do that, uh, it's so easy for them to point back and say, well, you're not perfect, Right? Instead of uh, looking at unbelievers, instead of looking at them and saying, oh, well, you ought to be different, and oh, you ought to serve the Lord differently, we choose to consume our energy with living uh, a life that is in pursuit of being worthy of the one who died for us. Our primary strategy for sharing Jesus with, uh, for, for others, sharing Jesus is for others to see the fruit of our lives that are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and looking for strategic opportunities to encourage and love. Very rarely does God say, hey, go correct somebody else, because then they just uh, will look at us. You know, first thing is, I've never had anybody really get convinced that way, right? I've never gone and yelled at somebody and said, you ought not to be doing that, you sinner. And they go, you're right. Oh, wow. I never thought about it. Let me turn and follow Jesus. And when you do that, you open yourself up. I mean, you know, if you say, oh, you ought not to be doing that, they turn around and they go, you're a hypocrite. You ought not to be doing that, right? But instead, what we say is we want to follow after Jesus, pursue Christ, so that they can see in us a difference. You know, here's the thing. Like, our lives should be different. If you've been following Jesus for 10 years, and you haven't had anybody come to you and say, hey, why did you make the decision that you made there? Hey, why do you have that attitude, even though I know you're going through a hard time? If nobody's come up to you and said, hey, there's something different about you, and you've been following Jesus for a decade, then that should raise a red flag for you. You should say, wow, am I really wholeheartedly pursuing Christ that no one can tell, right? That I'm this undercover Christian. But Jesus doesn't come and say, well, let me you know, talk to the world and put the world on notice. Jesus comes here in these chapters and says, let me put the church on notice. This is a hard conversation 
with Jesus and us as he wants to speak life into us and speak the truth into us. We love the grace of Jesus. We also ought to accept the truth of Jesus. Both of those things is what leads us to life and to peace. And so we begin this morning in Acts chapter 15 uh, with the Jerusalem Council giving instructions to the Gentile church. How, how many, uh, do, I don't know if we have any Jewish people in the room, right? I'm guessing that, you know, that most of us, I mean, they can make yell shalom, right? If you're Jewish, yell shalom. Nobody, okay? We're all Gentiles, right? And so Acts 15 is very important for us because Acts 15 is where the the Jewish followers of Jesus there say these are going to be the rules for the Gentiles that are going to follow. These are the, the, the Gentile church is founded on these rules in Acts chapter 15. And so in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, the disciples and, and the followers, the first followers of Jesus come together and they say this. We have heard in verse 24, we have heard that some went out from among us without our authorization and dis- disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barabbas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. And we rejoice because they were saying, you don't have to follow the law of Moses. You have to follow the commands of Jesus. And these are the rules they, they, they gave to us. Now we move over to Revelation chapter 2, and we see Jesus speaking through John to the churches at Smyrna and the church at Pergamum. And he says this, Jesus says this, To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know that the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church of Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. Sorry. (laughs) Where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam and taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Father, we just stand here in your presence. God, the opportunity to to praise you, Lord, is so wonderful. You are so worthy of our praise. I pray, God, that you would become larger in our hearts and in our minds so that you consume our vision. And, Lord, that we see ourselves and we see our lives through the lens that you have, God, the lens through which you see us. 
I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us and strengthen us, Lord, as we open your word and as we seek after you. God, we rejoice in who you are. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen and amen. You know, growing up in church, there was a lot of people who liked to play the, uh, the devil card, right? Like, the devil made me do it. You know, they never used those words exactly. Um, but, you know, you, if you got to the bottom line, it was like, well, the devil made me do it, right? Or the devil's been after me. It's hard. You know, the devil's been working on me. And even as a kid, I, I remember thinking, you know, maybe this was just a little tiny Pastor Jason, you know, just in, in kid form. But I was thinking, nah, it wasn't the devil, right? I mean, if you do X, you get Y, right? Uh, <laughs> Like, if you keep using your freedom to choose that, you're going to keep getting uh, that result. And, uh, in fact, we, we've got a meme. Uh, I, I know, you know, maybe this is the meme series. I don't know. But, you know, the devil is really working today. The devil, actually, I'm on vacation. That's all you, chief. And uh, <laughs> that makes me laugh. Um, but... You know, this has gotten me to a place where, uh, honestly, there's a little bit of cynicism. Like when I hear people play the spiritual card, right? I'm not sure that makes for a good pastor, but, you know, you're here, so we'll, we'll work it out as we go. And, uh, you know, when I hear somebody play the spiritual card, I'm like, R- really? Is that, is that the devil or is that like some choices uh, that you have made? Um, is that, uh, <laughs> and I don't know where you fall on this spectrum, uh, right? And I don't even know if it is a spectrum, uh, but it, are, are you one of those people who kind of lean in spiritually, like everything is super spiritual, like anytime anybody says anything, you know, they're out of bread at the grocery store, that you're like, well, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, you know, uh, but against principalities and powers and like everything spiritual. Are you on the other side of that spectrum and everything you hear, you're like, is that really spiritual or are you just making bad decisions, right? Like if you continue to use your God-given freedom to make those decisions, you're going to keep getting that result, right? And the truth is that really it's somewhere in the middle, right? We kind of need both sides of those, and we need to find that place in the middle. But it's so often it's hard to tell. Like, I'm going through life, and I'm, it's hard to see. It's like, is this like a practical issue? Do I need to make better decisions? Does somebody need to make better decisions, or is this a spiritual issue? And I look as Jesus comes to the Smyrnians. That's a fun word. I, I don't, are you... Can we just all say that together? Because I think you'll enjoy it more. You didn't laugh at all, and I think if we say it together, Smyrnians. Three, two, one, Smyrnians. Ah, you got That's fun, isn't it? Jesus comes to the Smyrnians, and he says to them, still fun. He, comes, he says to them, right, like this is a spiritual issue. The enemy is coming against you. And for me, I rejoice in that clarity. I like look at that and I see so much clarity. And I'm like, wow, isn't that great? Like to to know, like Jesus comes and he says, wow, hey, there's challenges. There's things happening here. And maybe, you know, I mean, Jesus says, listen, you're doing all the right things, right? You're doing everything that you're doing is okay. Because I don't know if you're like me, but when things don't go like the right way, I, I, I retreat into myself and I say, what am I doing wrong? Where am I broken? Like, what have I done wrong? Did I not pray all the... I know that this is not how God works, but still there's something inside of me that says, did I pray the right words? Did I get everything right? And coming in, and for Jesus to come and say, listen, it's not you. It's the devil. It's the enemy. There's like so much clarity in that. Do you know that's a clarity that God is willing to give us on things? That he's willing to speak into us? In fact, you know, this is, honestly, this is how I pray, and you, you're free to pray, you know, how, how you want to pray. But how I pray is this. I get in my prayer closet, and I write down everything that's on my mind, every person that's come to me. I, write, I just write names down. I write things down. If there's a financial thing or there's a situation, I just write it down. And I go through, and I begin to pray this way. I pray, God, is there something practical? 
practical there that I need to change, or God, is this a spiritual battle? And sometimes I'll pray about it, and God will just say, Jason, just to be perfectly honest, you're dumb. I mean, he doesn't say it just like that because he's a loving father, right? But he says, he says, you know, yeah, there's something that you need to change here. This is a practical issue. Or this is something that they need to change. This is a practical issue in their life. Sometimes the Lord will say, you know what, this is a spiritual issue. And this is the, the, the enemy is, is, is doing this in their, in their life and doing this in this situation, and you need to pray about that. And that clarity gives me the, the clarity that I need to be able to pray and to be able to move forward. If there's something in my life that needs to change, if there's something in your life that needs to change, I, I'll tell you, I'm your pastor, and I love you, and I'll pray for you. And sometimes God will say, you know, you need, they need to change this. And then I'll say, is there any way you could tell them? <laughs> and he will say, go. <laughs> and, and I'll get that wonderful opportunity to try to figure out a way to lovingly say, you know, God says, you know, the devil's on vacation. This is all you, chief. <laughs> right? And, uh, and you, need to, you need to change this or, or whatever. Or God will give that clarity in prayer. And I just want to encourage you, if you don't know how to pray, if you're figuring out how to pray, I think getting a piece of paper and a pen and just writing down the things that are bothering you and the people in your life that you care about and going to God and saying, God, is there practical things that need to change or is there something spiritual that needs to be addressed? I think that is a powerful, incredible way to start. And Jesus comes to Smyrna and he says, listen guys, you guys are good, right? <sighs> but the devil's out to get you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? And uh, some of you are going to be thrown in prison and some of you are going to die. And it's like, oh. And, and you know, there's this idea in cultural Christianity that if I'm doing everything right and I'm praying everything right, that that means life's going to be easy and life's going to be good, and that if life's not easy and life's not perfect, then, then something's wrong in your relationship with Jesus, and that's not true. You know, you can be doing all the right things and praying all the right prayers and all those things, and still there is a very real enemy of your soul. There is a very real spiritual dynamic to your life, and you can be doing all the right things, and yet life can be hard. And Jesus comes to these Smyrnians, and he says to them, listen, your life's going to be hard here, but it's not. It's nothing between me and you, but it's just because the world is broken by sin, and you have a very real enemy of your soul. Don't be discouraged. Don't be deceived by that idea. Don't be living along those lines. Like if things aren't going right for me, that means God is somehow angry at me. That might mean that the enemy knows what's going to happen in your life, and he's trying to derail you. The enemy's been paying attention, don't you know, for these thousands of years? And he's been watching how God works in our lives. And he, I'm telling you, he knows better than we do when God is getting ready to do something significant in our lives. God is building us up. And the enemy says, oh, I see it. It's A, B, C. I know what's getting ready to happen next. God is going to bless them. God is going to open a door for them. So I need to attack them now. Sometimes things, the wheels falling off and things happening in your life, sometimes it can mean that you need to make changes. Other times it might mean that the enemy knows something good is about to break in, uh, for you. And he's trying to discourage you and derail you before that happens. So that's why God says we need to pray. We need to be asking. We need to be seeking. We need to seek that word from Christ who would speak in and say, hey, you're good, but the enemy is moving. You know, sometimes when we lean too far into the spiritual, sometimes when everything becomes spiritualized uh, in the Christian community, uh, we get perceived as naive. Uh, we get perceived as sort of disconnected from reality. Oh, it's all spiritual, right? 
And that naivety, that sort of fear of missing out on the Christian side of things, takes us in to the church of Pergamum. You know, Pergamum was an incredible city, much like Ephesus. And uh, we talked about Ephesus last week. And actually, Ephesus and Pergamum alternated being the capitals of Asia Minor, which is now uh, Turkey. And Ephesus was a beautiful port city. And Pergamum was a a beautiful city up on a mountain. In fact, it was built on a 1,000-foot cone-shaped mountain. I've got a picture. This is the lower part uh, of the mountain that was built, the, the remnants of this city. And as you see, that's in, the, that's in the dry times. And you can see the valley below as Pergamum rose 1,000 feet above the valley. And this next picture um, you see in the, in the rainy season. And this is a picture of the top. That was the bottom. This is the top. In a minute, we're going to see them both together. But you can see that beautiful view down, uh, 1,000 feet uh, down into the valley. And as you would approach Pergamum, it, was, it had this lower level and this hill that went up that they had built out. And it looked like a throne. As you approached it from the valley, it looked like a chair, like a beautiful throne. And uh, we can see here in this next picture from the bottom up to the top. And up at the top there, they had temples built to Zeus and temples built to Dionysus and temples built uh, to this god called Asclepius, who was the god of healing, who was also known as the Savior. And so people come in and they're talking about Jesus and they say, oh, no, we have that. And they say, no, this is, this is different. But all of those temples built up on top, you can see that amphitheater there in the side of the mountain and how beautiful that must have been at the time. As, and Pergamum becomes a place of, that becomes a center for Greek culture and Hellenistic worship. In fact, Pergamum is the first place that's given the authority to build a shrine to somebody who's still alive. They built the first shrine to the emperor of Rome so that they could worship the emperor of Rome as if he was divine there in Pergamum. They became just the, just the center of, of all of these, this emperor worship and these, these worship of the gods. You can imagine how beautiful this was. And Jesus, as he describes Pergamum, he says, I know where you live. You live on the throne of Satan. Like this place that's known, that's seen from a distance as a throne. And he says, that's the throne of Satan. I know where you live. I know what you're in the middle of here. As, as he begins to speak to them. Now, last week we talked about Ephesus. And we talked, and it was a beautiful port city. And it was a, a very influenced by Hellenistic culture as well. These are two strong cities. And we talked about the church there. And the church there... Uh, if you remember, they were known for not having love, right? Jesus says, you've left your first love. And he says to them, uh, listen, I recognize that you hate the sin of the Nicolaitans and that you are strict about that. And we've all known Christians like that, right? That are so strict and so, so rule-following and so bound into the rules. The church at Ephesus, they would kick you out if you didn't follow the rules, right? And I don't know if you've ever been to a church like that and you've been there and you know that if you step out of line, you don't wear the right thing, you don't do the right thing, you know, whatever. They find out something's going on in your life and they will kick you out, right? And they will think that they are doing the Lord's work. And Jesus comes to the church of Ephesus and he says, listen, I love the fact that you seek after righteousness, but there's also love as part of the equation. Then Jesus comes to Pergamum and he says this, listen, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Instead of kicking those people out, instead of not showing them love, the church at Pergamum accepted them, arms wide open. And they said, oh, whatever sin you've got, it's okay. Come on in. It's fine. 
You, you, can, you can continue in that sin, and you can still be a follower of Jesus. What the Nicolaitans taught, and in the, in the church at Ephesus, Jesus said, I hate the sin of the Nicolaitans. And in the church of Pergamon, Jesus reiterates, I hate this sin. Because what this sin is, is it's taking sin, and it's putting it in a package, and it's putting the Jesus stamp on it, and saying that Jesus is okay with it. And Jesus says, when you do that, I hate that. And Jesus doesn't say, I hate a lot of things. Like when Jesus talks about hating something, right? He's not like your kids. I hate peas. <laughs> no. When he says he hates something, he means it is bad, right? And he says, I hate this. But what the Nicolaitans believed is that there was a separation between your soul and your body. They were a Gnostic sect of Christianity, if, if those words mean anything to you. And they believed that what you did in your body did not affect your soul, that your soul was separate. And whatever I did in my body does not defile my soul. But the scripture teaches us that that's not true, that God has made us as whole beings, body, soul, and spirit together. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 7.1, therefore... Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The teachings of the Nicolaitans was exactly the opposite of that. It was, hey, the flesh is the flesh. You're going to die. Your body's going to go into the ground. It doesn't matter. Your soul is eternal. It can't be touched by your body. And yet, the scripture and the, and the, Pergam, the, the church at Pergamum would have had these teachings. The apostle Paul wrote the scriptures, and, and they would have had it. They would have had all of these teachings and known the truth, that our body, soul, and spirit is connected, and what we do in one affects the other. You know this. You've been discouraged. You've had bad news. You've had things happen, and what happens? You get sick. You get, like, physically sick. Like, I got a cold, I got the flu, and I know, like, before that happened, I was having all this conflict, and all these things were happening, and I was down in my spirit, and my spirit drug my body down, and now I'm sick in my body. And you know that through your experience. And the scriptures tell us that this is true. And it tells us that those things that we do in the body affects our spirit. And Jesus says that you ought not to teach that. Now, the, the church at Ephesus took the strict rule with the Nicolaitans. They said, listen. We're not going to have that here. If, if you say that the body and soul are spirit, we're going to kick you out, right? And the church of Pergamum said, but we love these people. Like God's told us we're supposed to love people. And they come in and they're teaching this, you know, your body and your spirit is separate. Well, we'll take them in. We, we love them, right? You see, the thing that we know about the enemy is that the enemy cannot stand directly against the gospel. So he attempts to push us toward not being loving or being loving in the name of uh, are being accepting in the name of being loving. He tries to push us to one of these two extremes. He tries to push us so that we, we come across and we're just all truth to people and we're all like, hey, you're going to hell and you get out of here and we don't want you. Or on the other end of the spectrum, hey, everything's okay, come on in. You know, there's faith, there's forgiveness of, of all sin and it's okay, you can sin and still be a Christian on the other end of the spectrum. So the enemy is working to push us in one of those two directions. Don't you see it? Don't you see it in our culture? Don't you see it in, 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 the, in our society as, as the church is perceived? We're perceived as one of two things, right? It's like over here, like we hate you. Or over here, like everything's okay. Jesus loves you. Do whatever you want. 
And he wants to push us in one of those two directions. And the hardest thing for us to do as Christians is to do what we're supposed to do, and that is to walk the line between grace and truth. How do we do that? How do I show people that I love them but also do not accept their sin? How do I do that? How do I walk in that line between those two things? That is the call on us. And yet it's so challenging. How do I not become Ephesus and lose love? How do I not become Pergamum, just accepting of everything? How do I walk that middle road? And the scripture is so clear to us, it tells us. It tells us that we need to rely on the Holy Spirit of God each and every day. That we need to pray without ceasing. That we need to be plugged into him. So that every interaction that we have with people is led by the Holy Spirit. So that I know when I encounter this person that they need love in that moment. And when I encounter this person, that they need truth in this moment, that they need to be guided. Where are they? What's going on in their life? How do I walk that? You know, what's easy for us is to not be connected to God and just to walk around with rules in our pocket and to walk around with preconceived ideas and to walk around with, well, I know this is who I'm going to be. I'm going to be the person that just tells everybody they're going to hell, right? I mean, that's easy, right? It's pretty easy. Just walk around. You know, some people talk back. I don't care. They're going to hell right? Or I just accept, I'm just going to be the person that, you know, I just love everybody and I'll just let God work it out and I'll never speak truth. I'll never have a hard conversation. I'll never talk to them about the truth of the scriptures or sin. I'm just, I love you. You're great. Everything's wonderful. Instead, it's such a challenge for us as believers to say, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just pigeonhole myself. I'm not just going to become this, but instead I'm going to stay plugged into God. So that when I encounter somebody, my first response to them is not, you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. My first response is, tell me your story. What's going on in your life? What's brought you here? What is it that you believe? Why do you believe that? Let's talk about it. Let's let's flesh this out. Holy Spirit, lead me in this moment so that I know, does this person need love in this moment in order to find your truth? And so many people that I talk to, that is what they need. They know what's right, but they've just had so many people screaming at them that they're going to hell that they've never even been able to have the time to sit and process what's right and how they want to pursue a holy God. Or do... Are to sit and say, you know what, in this moment, they need to hear the truth of the Bible. And they may hate me after this conversation, but the Holy Spirit is telling me that I need to share with them the truth in this moment. And, and, and maybe it wrecks this relationship, but the Holy Spirit's leading me to say, hey, you, you need to look at the Bible. You need to see the Word of God, and you need to understand. It's so easy not to walk the middle road, but to call on us as individuals is to balance, as Jesus did, grace and truth, to walk between Ephesus and Pergamum, to walk in and say, I I, I respect and I acknowledge the holiness and righteousness of God, and I respect and acknowledge the love and forgiveness of Jesus. And there's both of those things. And how can those things come into this moment? Now for us, we know that this is a, a hard road to walk right? As it relates to other people, as it relates to non-believers. It's something that we have to constantly be in prayer about, constantly seeking the Lord. But as it relates to us, at those of us that call ourselves Christians, we know that we begin with judgment at the house of God, that it starts with us. And that when Jesus comes and wants to have a hard conversation with how I'm living my life or how you are living your life, he has the right to do that. 
because you're waving the banner and saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. So if he comes and says, you ought to listen, you ought to change, then we have to be open to hearing what God says to us. It's not always comfortable. I don't enjoy preaching it. I would love to preach something else to you. But here we are in the book of Revelation, and Jesus is talking to us. And he said to us last week, listen, it's so easy for other things to become the center of your life. And, and for, the, for the church at, at Pergamum and for the church at Ephesus, this manifests through idols and meat offered to idols. And my guess is you've never had been offered meat that was offered to idols and had that choice to make, right? If you have, I would love to hear the story. I bet it's fascinating. Like, where were you in the world that somebody said, hey, this was just offered to idols. Is that all right? <laughs> Grill that bad boy up. Let's do it. You know, I mean, I'd love to hear that story, but that's not really how it works in our lives today, right? 2023, there's not a lot of meat offered to idols, unless Walmart's an idol, but we can talk about that later, right? <laughs> but instead, what happens is we take other things in our lives and we put them at the center of our lives instead of Jesus. You know, we can take our, our children and we can put them at the center of our lives and they can become an idol that in our life begins to revolve around our children. You know, we can uh, take work and money and success, and it be can become the center of our life. You know, it's not everything, but it's the center. Everything revolves around work and money and success and how I'm viewed in that. We can take hobbies, and we can take a lifestyle, and we can put it at the center of our lives, and we can begin to revolve around that. And we don't, we don't think about it as an idol. We think about an idol as a little carved statue, and I don't pray to an idol, right? But yet if something else becomes the center of our lives, that's an idol, and we don't like to talk about it. And when somebody starts talking about it, we're like, well, you mind your own business, right? You raise your kids. You do your work. You do whatever, however you want to. And you know what? It's easy to have a rule. It, 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 rules are easy, right? Okay, you're not allowed to have children because children can become an idol. You're not allowed to work and succeed because work and success can become an idol. You're not allowed to have any hobbies. I mean, I... We grew up in that church. <laughs> You're not allowed to have any hobbies because those hobbies can become... That's dumb. That's stupid, right? What do we do? No, we have kids. We have work. We have success. We have hobbies. And we operate in community with other people and before the Lord. And we figure out, how do I not make those kids and that work and those hobbies the center of my life? I keep Jesus as the center of my life. That's what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I have all of the things in life that God blesses me with and leads me into, but those never become the center around which my life revolves. It's way harder than having rules. It requires us to live in community. It requires us to be open to instruction from the Spirit and from those trusted around us to say, hey, you're leaning in a little too much to this, but you get out of my business. No, thank you for speaking truth and life to me. You know, as it relates to sexual sin in our culture, there are not any uh, temples out that I'm aware of where people go and do things in public, right? Praise the Lord, you know? Uh, praise the Lord that that's not the case. Instead, in our society, uh, we approach other sexual sins that have become part of our culture and accepted. Casual sex is something that's become expected and just part of the culture. And you're naive and you're prudish if, if you're not willing to engage in that. Living together before you're married has become something that's expected and just part of our culture. All of the arguments of, well, you got to try it before you buy it. All of the arguments of, well, this makes financial sense for us. Um, and yet the truth of Scripture is this, it describes sex before marriage as fornication. 
and it falls under the rubric of sexual immorality. Acts 15 instructs against it. Paul, throughout his writings, instructs against it. And Jesus comes here and says sexual immorality is a sin. And yet, for our culture, those things fall. And if you don't do that, you're naive and you're, and you're prudish and you're antiquated. And yet, science continues to confirm, experience continues to confirm that this is not the way to the best life. But instead, God's ways lead us to the best life. Adultery is sex outside of marriage. And the scriptures tell us plainly that that is a sin. And whenever we engage and say, you know what, what I do in my body does not affect my spirit, right? When that, we don't phrase it just like that, but we say, oh, well, this doesn't affect my spirit. We're coming against the scriptures. We're coming against the teaching of God. And it's, so, and it's so easy to justify and to, and to talk ourselves into things and say, oh, well, this doesn't hurt anybody else, and oh, this doesn't hurt anybody, and oh, this is, and everybody's doing it, and this is what culture says, and that's, you know, antiquated thinking. And yet, the scriptures over and over remind us that those things that we do in our body, they defile our spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says this, flee from sexual immorality, period, period. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Just hold that there for a second. So interesting that Paul would phrase it this way. When the thought is, my soul and my spirit are different, he says, no, you're sinning against your own body when you do these things. Ephesians 5, 3 through 7. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. Or of greed, because these are improper for God's people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Those things sound harsh, but those are the words of our Lord and Master. He says to us, us on the inside, there ought not be a hint of sexual immorality. There ought not be, to be speech that brings death. There ought not to be these kinds of behaviors in us. It's, it's hard to address issues with other people that don't believe in Jesus. But you know what? We can leave that if we can follow Christ and begin to bear the fruit in our lives of the righteousness of God. That is what makes us salt and light. That is what makes us reach out to the others. But yet it's for us in the church to stop and acknowledge what is the center of my life? Am I revolving around Christ so that decisions that I make and things that I do, other people might question, why are you doing that? Or would anybody who doesn't even believe in Jesus understand perfectly why you make the decisions that you do because you don't have Jesus at the center of your life? You know, Jesus talks to the Pergam Pergamites and he says to them, I'm so glad that you haven't denied my name, but this I still have against you. It's easy to wave the flag of Jesus. To be honest, it's easy to come to church on Sunday. I don't, 
It's the living out in obedience. That's the challenge, but also that's the witness. That's the testimony. You know, I stand up here and I'm not perfect. I have not done anything that would disqualify me from standing up here, but that doesn't mean that I'm perfect. But it's not me that's talking to you today. It's Jesus. And he says in Revelation 2.16, he says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. My prayer as your pastor is that you will examine your life, that you will repent of anything that you know is not in line with the ways of God. I, I want grace and peace for you. I don't want Jesus coming to fight against us. I, I, I want us to be in line with him. May we never become a church that loses sight of what it is to walk in grace and truth, to, to, to walk in the love of Jesus, but also the holiness and righteousness of God. And the only way we can be that is if we are that individually walking in line with the Lord, balanced by grace and truth, balanced by love and holiness, by forgiveness and righteousness. Can we pray together in this moment? And if there's anything in your life right now that the Holy Spirit brings to your heart and, and, and says, this is not in line with the way I designed you to live, I pray that right now in this moment, just you and the Lord, that you would repent that you would come to the Lord, that you would say, God, I recognize this thing is not as it ought to be. Lord, I, I confess that I've been so worried about the sins of other people, but God, I need to examine my own heart. Lord, search me and see if there is any way in me that is not pleasing to you. Direct me and guide me, Lord. Jesus, speak to me into my heart. Lord, direct me in the ways, the attitudes, the actions that need to change. Father, if there is a besetting sin that is in my life, God, show me the way to break it. Give me the grace, Lord, to pull away from this habit that has become entrenched in my way of thinking and my way of being. And Lord, instead, Lord, shape me and mold me into the image of Jesus. Your ways are the best ways, God. Lord, I love you. I want to follow after you. I rejoice, Jesus, that you said that you are faithful and just to forgive me of my sins if I confess my sins. So God, here they are. Wash me clean. Make me new in you. Give me strength to serve you, Lord. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand together. You know, I heard someone the other day talking about small groups, and they said, you know, the thing that small groups had done for them is that they knew the right thing to do, but they needed a nudge to do it. And I thought that was so powerful. It's like, I know the right thing a lot of times. I just need a little nudge. You know, one of the things small groups does for us, it gives us that nudge. I mean, right now you might be sitting here and thinking, hopefully as the Holy Spirit's led you, thinking, man, this needs to change in my life. If you need a nudge in that direction, Maybe small groups is the place for you. Maybe swinging by that table and looking and seeing where the days and groups are out there would be a good place to plug in and to help grow to be the person that we need to be. Amen?
Our prayer team's coming at this time. Everybody else is going to hit the doors, but if you've got something to pray about uh, while, while everybody's focused on lunch, maybe you still have some work that you need to do with God. And these people would love to pray with you. There's power in agreement. Maybe you have an interview coming up this week. Maybe you have school starting this week. Maybe you have somebody in your life that needs a touch and, and you need agreement. Maybe there's something in your life that you need to change and you've tried to do it alone so many times, but you need prayer of agreement to, to help you and to encourage you. These folks would love to pray with you this morning. God, as we leave this place, I pray your blessing on your people. Give us peace that passes understanding, a peace that is so strong in us, God, that people around us take notice and they come and they say, what's different about you? And our answer will be, it's Jesus. He's given me hope for eternity. He's changed my life. He's directing me. He's given me peace that I can't understand. God, I thank you for this peace and I pray this blessing on your people now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Peace be with you.